What if you had a vehicle that started just about once out of every four times you tried to start it? Now, when it started on the fourth time, uh, you could go where you wanted to go, but lots of times when you tried to start the car, it wouldn't start, and you were left stranded. Um, Josh's truck was doing that to him not long ago. You can't put up with that. You've got to fix that. You can't have one that's only going to start once out of every three or four times. That's, that's just not going to get the job done. What if you were a boss on a job and you had an employee that only showed up about three days out of every five that he was supposed to be at work? You couldn't keep that guy as an employee, not very long at all, because that just simply doesn't get the job done. What descriptive, what descriptive word would you use of a situation like that? The word unfaithful, the word unfaithful would fit, right? I don't think we usually would use that word in regards to those kind of situations, but it's an appropriate word. That car is unfaithful in starting. Or that employee is unfaithful in coming to work regularly. Unfortunately, sometimes we hear of married couples and maybe one of the partners in that marriage relationship is cheating on his spouse or her spouse. And we use the word unfaithful about that, right? He's been unfaithful to his wife. She's been unfaithful to her husband. We understand that expression, and it's obviously not a good thing. Most often, though, the word unfaithful is applied to spiritual things. It's applied to our religious service. And unfortunately, unfaithfulness happens. It typically doesn't happen suddenly. It usually develops over a period of time. Maybe it involves... The, a, a missed assembly when someone could have been there and they chose not to be there. And it's manifested in the fact they spend less time reading and studying their Bible, maybe less time devoted to prayer, and it just sort of builds over time. And what happens is people become unfaithful. We want to ask a question this morning for our study. Who is hurt if I am unfaithful? Number, what's the outcome? And who's affected? If I personally become unfaithful in my spiritual service to God, who's hurt as a result of that? We want to look at that this morning and hopefully bring out some facts that would encourage us all that we cannot afford that. We certainly cannot afford to be unfaithful to God. We'll look at that here in our study this morning. We stop to thank everybody for being here. We're glad for your presence. We appreciate you very much. Uh, for our visitors, we're glad you've come our way and want you to come back. Thanks for being here today. As we study together, make sure we're, we're accurately uh, using the Word of God. We don't want to twist or pervert the Scriptures in any way. That would be wrong, and we don't want to do it. If you, if you think maybe that has happened, please say a word to us, and, and we'll study together. And, and if it is the case that we have perverted the Scriptures in any way, we'll, we'll make every effort to correct that and do better in the future. But, of course, ultimately, what we want to do is take the truths of God's Word and make application in our personal lives, and that's a challenge for us all. Whenever we look to the Word of God, let's study together. Who is hurt if I am unfaithful? I think the very first obvious answer to that question, certainly I am hurt. I'm going to be hurt if I am unfaithful. Um, some people think that being faithful to the Lord is, is a hardship. That is, it, it's, uh, it results in a very miserable kind of life. And so some people say, I don't, I'm not going to try to do that because it would hurt me to try and live the way God wants me to live. And that's just not true. Living the way that God wants us to live is in our advantage. Uh, and so if I don't live the way He wants me to live, that hurts me. 
You remember the statement of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Notice, for our good always. That's, that's been forever the truth about God's law for man. Now, we don't live under the law that Moses was describing there in Deuteronomy, but it's always been the case. Whenever God gave instructions to people, to the Jews under the law of Moses or to us under the law of Christ, whenever God gives instructions, it's for our good. He knows what's good for us. He made us. He created us. And so if I live as he says, it's for my good. If I choose not to live the way he says, I hurt myself. That's the point we're trying to bring out here. The Lord is not some kind of harsh taskmaster who's put upon us responsibilities and requirements that are just next to impossible to do, and even if we could, it would result in our misery and suffering. That's not the case. The Lord has commanded us about things that are good for us. He is our loving Heavenly Father. But I'll tell you, if you choose to reject His will in your life, you're going to be hurting yourself. The problem, of course, is that our hearts can grow hard so that we can't even be touched by the message of God's Word. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. The Hebrew writer here talks about some people who obviously had experienced the blessings of being in Christ. Notice, they were partakers of the Holy Ghost. They tasted the good Word of God, the powers of the world to come. These were clearly people who knew the truth and had initially committed to it, but now they had turned away. They had become unfaithful. And he says it's impossible to renew them again into repentance. Now, other places in Scripture clearly tell us that we can repent if we will, but I believe what the Hebrew writer is describing here is the possibility that we could get so far gone that it just doesn't matter to us anymore. Our hearts are hardened. We just don't care. We certainly can't afford to allow that to happen. If I become unfaithful and my heart would grow hard, I'm in a desperate situation. We cannot afford that unfaithfulness. So, our point is that we hurt ourselves when we become unfaithful to God. God's plan for our life is the best now, but certainly we understand we're going to have to face judgment. We need to be prepared for that because eternity rests in the balance. In Romans chapter 14, verse 11, beginning, As it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And so judgment is coming. So put that together. I'm hurt if I'm unfaithful because I hurt myself in the present life and then, of course, I face damnation in eternity. Certainly, I am hurt if I become unfaithful. But I would tell you there's other people who are hurt too. I, I, I suppose some people would say, well, that's my business. If it's me that I'm hurting, then that's none of your business. Leave it alone. I'll do as I please and you can't, you're not in any position to tell me to do otherwise. But when we stop to analyze, and it's not just me that's hurt if I become unfaithful to the Lord, there are a number of others who are affected as well. For instance, weak or new Christians are affected also. Do you realize that you're being observed by others? All of us are. People are watching. And the fact of the matter is that if, if you slack off and become erratic, unfaithful in your service to God, others will see that. 
And there's the real potential that because you are not doing what you ought to do, you could become a, a, an evil influence to others. And the Scripture uses the word stumbling block. It's possible that you could become a stumbling block. Jesus acknowledged this in the reading that Rick read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus said, except you become converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Notice Jesus acknowledged the reality that there would be stumbling blocks in the way of those who are trying to live faithfully. But he warns, don't you be that one who causes the stumbling block. Don't you be the one who is a bad influence on others that serves as a, 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 an influence for the bad rather than the good. Jesus tells us we've got to be concerned about that and we're going to be held accountable to that. And so when we ask the question, who's going to be hurt? It's, it's just my business, isn't it? It's none of your business what I do, whether I'm faithful. Yes, it is. Because we have influence on others, don't we? We think about the weak or new Christians who might be affected in a bad way. But I would also tell you that even those who are strong spiritually are hurt when a fellow Christian becomes weak or unfaithful. Um, I think sometimes concerning the strong folks in the Lord's service, we, they're sort of a neglected group. We, don't, we, we maybe have the opinion, I don't have to worry about those people. I don't have to worry about that guy. He's a strong Christian. Nothing, that, nothing will, will shake him in his faith, and hopefully that's true. But we understand that even strong folks need encouragement. Think about the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. We think definitely that 2 Timothy was the last epistle that Paul wrote. And he was writing from Rome and he was anticipating his apparently soon-to-happen execution. It was imminent. Uh, so here's the strong Apostle Paul. I think all of us imagine the Apostle Paul is just a tower of spiritual strength. Uh, he, he endured so much. In service. But he needed encouragement too. And he was encouraged by someone like Timothy. I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you. Uh, what if Timothy had slipped back? What if Timothy had been unfaithful? What if he had not been doing a good job serving God? Don't you think that would have served to be a discouragement? Because Paul mentions in that same epistle that apparently some others had been a discouragement to him. In chapter 4, right near the very end of the book, near the very end of words we have by inspiration from Paul, in chapter 4, beginning verse 9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica, Christians to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Do thy diligence to come before winter. We've commented about this passage plenty of times in the past, but the idea here is here's this spiritual tower of strength, Paul. But he mentions Demas, and we don't know the case with all the others. They may not have become unfaithful, but he was left alone, and he, he didn't have the encouragement. And he even mentions that when he initially stood uh, to give answer for his faith, no man stood with him. All forsook him. And you get the idea that Paul was hurt by that. Not that he became unfaithful, not, no, no stretch of imagination would lead us to that conclusion, but he was obviously needing encouragement. Do, do thy diligence to come before winter. Please, Timothy, come. He needed Timothy's encouragement. 
And so from all of that, I would argue that even strong people, even the strongest of people are hurt if their fellow Christians become unfaithful and can't be relied upon. We understand that part of our coming together is for the purpose of encouraging one another. We certainly come together to worship and glorify God, but by His design in our coming together, we serve as an encouragement for one another. Very familiar text here in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another to provoke into love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We come together for purposes of exhortation. If you're not here, if you choose to do something else, then obviously you can't be exhorting us who are here. And probably the word we would use more commonly is you can't be an encouragement to us. You are probably effectively a discouragement to us. If you... If it's known you had the chance to be here and chose to do otherwise, that's a discouragement. And so, I think if we become unfaithful, we need to know that not only are we hurting weak people, but we are also failing to be the encouragement that we ought to be to those who are strong. Very specifically, let me add that if I become unfaithful, certainly I'm going to hurt my family. A while back, there was a, one of the car makers had an ad campaign, and they were trying to talk about the quality of their product, and their, their ad campaign was that quality was job one, job one. And by that, they meant that the top priority in, in the production of that automobile was to make sure it was a quality product. I don't know if they did or not. <laughs> probably not. But their, their bottom line was probably making money. But they had the ad campaign that job one was quality. Well, I want to tell you, as parents in particular, raising our children to be faithful servants of God has got to be job one. When we talk about job one, we're talking about top priority. And as parents in regards to our children, our top priority in regards to them ought to be that they are faithful in service to God. Uh, it doesn't matter what their career path is. It doesn't matter where they live or what else they do in their lives. If 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 Nothing else happens, but they be faithful to the Lord, and that would be a great thing. And that's got to be our job one as parents. But I'm going to tell you, as a parent, if you fall back, if you're not faithful in serving God, I'm going to tell you, your family will suffer for that. If you are unfaithful, your family will suffer. Let me ask you just a very simple question in regard to that. In your personal recollection and experience, can you remember any, any family in the Lord's church that you've known through the years where the parents were very weak Christians, but their children turned out to be really strong? Now, that can happen. That can obviously happen because every, every individual is a free moral agent to make their own decisions about commitment to the Lord. But just, in, just by recalling and, and your experience in such matters, it's not typical, is it? It's not typically, it's not typical that parents who are weak and faltering Christians produce children who are strong in the faith. It doesn't happen often. It can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that's not typical. And what that bears out for us is that parents have this powerful influence over their children. And, and, and if I'm unfaithful, particularly if I'm a parent with children, I'm really going to hurt my family, uh, in the long run. Go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We read the first part of this verse a moment ago, but look at it again. Paul says to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it's in you as well. 
Why did Timothy have that strong faith that was an encouragement to Paul? Well, Paul credits Timothy's mother and grandmother for instilling that faith in him. We know we don't know much else about his mother and his grandmother, but knowing this alone is enough to rank them way up there as great people in, in service to God. Their faith was manifested uh, in Timothy. And that's the way we want it to be, don't we? As parents with children, we want our children to grow up to be faithful to the Lord. That's Bottom line, that's what matters most of all. It's our job. It's got to be job one. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's nothing else more important than that. But I want to tell you something. A key to that, maybe the most fundamental key to bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, probably the single most important thing that you can do in regards to that is be faithful yourself. Now, there's other things you've got to do, right? You're going to have to teach, you're going to have to provide leadership and all that. But your example, your personal example of faithfulness is undoubtedly the most important thing in bringing your own children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so, when we think about who's hurt, if I'm unfaithful, certainly my family is going to suffer. I would add that the lost people all around me are going to suffer too if I'm unfaithful to the Lord. Think about somebody you know. Think about somebody that you frequently associate with frequently associate with, but that person, I'm asking you to think of someone who's not a Christian. Someone in your sphere of influence who's not a Christian. Uh, it could be a good personal friend, a neighbor, a, a co-worker, maybe even a family relative, maybe a, a cousin or someone else that you are around with some frequency, but they're not a Christian. Now, as you're thinking about that person, let me ask you this. That person that you're thinking of do they read the Bible often? Probably not. They probably don't read the Bible very often. Do they study? Do they pray? Probably not. Not very much anyway. So, what do they know about Christ? What do they know about serving Christ? Well, what they know about it is what they see in you, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, very famously, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Timothy led us in the song that says we are the only Bible the world will ever read. And typically that's true of the unbelieving people in the world. They're not going to open the pages of Scripture and read it for themselves. Not initially. Initially, what they're going to know about it is what they see in us. Now, what if you are not faithful then? What if they identify you as a, a person who claims to be a Christian, but they see that you are not strong? You're not being faithful. What would be their conclusion? Because they're not going to open the pages of Scripture to read it for themselves typically. What's going to be their conclusion? It must not be that important. It doesn't seem important to that guy. He says he's a, he's a Christian. I know he goes to church occasionally. He, he, he says he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it must not be real important because I see him forsaking those things a lot in order to do other... He's... What? He's not faithful, is he? And the unfaithfulness of such a person certainly is going to hurt the lost people around him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, 
Glorify God in the day of visitation. That's our, that's our duty. That's so important. And the lost people around us are depending on, they don't know it, but they're depending on us to live faithfully for the Lord because it's probably the only chance or hope they have that they may eventually be convinced to serve God in heaven. So, I'm hurt. Weak folks are hurt. Strong people are hurt. My family's hurt. Lost people around me are hurt. But let me suggest one more on this list. The Father in heaven is hurt too when I'm not faithful. How often do you make decisions based on not wanting to hurt someone else's feelings? How often do you do that? So maybe somebody calls you up and says, Hey, come and go with me to Nashville. I gotta go up to Nashville, uh, to pick up something. Come, come and go with me. Oh man, I don't want to ride up to Nashville. I got things I need to do. And I hate that traffic up there in Nashville. I, I, man, I, I, I just don't want to have to go. But I don't want to hurt his feelings. You know, he asked me to go with him. I'm gonna go. Even though it wouldn't be my first choice, I'm gonna go. Why? I don't want to hurt his feelings. We make decisions like that all the time, don't we? Various things that we might do wouldn't necessarily be something that we would do uh, if left to our own devices, but we, we do things because we don't want to hurt somebody else. All right. Now apply that kind of logic to the one who loves us more than anyone else. Apply that very logic to our Father in heaven. He loves you most of all. And we need to factor that into our decision-making. Why should I be faithful? More than any of the other reasons which we have suggested, this ought to be the most important reason why I'm going to be faithful because I don't want to act against, contrary to, or in a hurtful way to my Father in heaven who loves me. We all remember the very familiar instance of Joseph when he was sold as a slave in Egypt and he was serving in the house of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him into committing sexual immorality and he refused Although I think there probably would have been plenty of reasons for him, plenty of earthly or carnal reasons for him to agree to what she was suggesting. He refused. He said, how can I do this great wickedness? Notice, and sin against God. He had in mind God. He knew that if he were to commit such a sin, it would be an offense against God. He didn't want to sin against God. And we need to have that same thinking in our mind. We're going to face temptations too of all sorts. And when we're tempted and when, when it's possible that we could become unfaithful in serving God, remember, we can't hurt Him who loves us most of all. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. The Lord said, I can't take any, I can't take any pleasure uh, in, the, in the death of the wicked. Really, he says the thing that would cause me pleasure is if the wicked would turn from his way and live. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. That's what he wants. And that's what he wants from us, is our faithful service. And if we become unfaithful, then we've hurt him who loves us most of all. Well, think about it. There's, there's six things there on that list. And every single one of them serves as an important motivation for us to be faithful. It's more than just me. That's important. I hurt myself when I'm unfaithful. But there's more to that. And we need to think about all of that and remember the importance of being faithful to the Lord. 
Lots of people are hurt if I am unfaithful. What's your situation this morning? Are you faithful to the Lord? Our lesson really has been addressed primarily to those of us who are Christians already. So let us speak to you first as we prepare to sing this song of invitation. If you're unfaithful, there's a lot of consequence to that. And if you've not been faithful to the Lord, you need to correct that. Come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If you're a Christian already, but you've not been serving your Lord like you should, we hope you'll make that decision and that change. If you're not yet a Christian, we hope you'll commit yourself uh, to obeying that simple plan of salvation. Hear the truth. Believe it. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Jesus. Be baptized for the remission of sins. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.